Continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation chapter 21 and now at verse 24. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. I want to pause there because this, is, this brings up a very, very critical thing. Who, who are here in the city, who are walking in the light, uh, who are worshiping God in the temple of His being? The answer is the nations of those who are saved. This is very consistent with the earlier part of the book of Revelation, chapter 5, that speaks of a people being drawn from every tribe, tongue, language and nation. Clear and obvious that the selection has been made. But as important is what happened at the end of the 20th, what was recorded in the end of the 20th chapter. Just to go back and refresh your memory. He says, the sea, this is following the final judgment at the end of the millennium. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And everyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Is there any, any difficulty in understanding that? Those who are written in the book of life, chapter 21 describes it further as the Lamb's book of life. Everyone not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is final destruction. And you will note that the dead were raised in a second resurrection. The first resurrection is of the righteous dead at the coming of the Lord. The second resurrection is at the end of the millennium when it's time now for Satan to be cast into the lake of fire, the false prophet, the antichrist, and what's left of the authority of the beast. They're destroyed. But along with them are those who have been raised to be judged. That's what it says. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened, another book was opened which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. 
The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell were delivered up, or delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. What's the basis of judgment? How you lived. How you lived. What am I getting at? I'm wanting to show you that there is no future with God for those who rejected God, who rejected Christ. There is this doctrine floating around called the doctrine of universal salvation, which is after the millennium, you know, everybody's going to get this alleged second chance and that God will not ultimately destroy anybody. That's a doctrine of demons. Everyone is judged according to his works. If you rejected Christ, that work of rejection, here's what happens. Anyone not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, in case you think, well, maybe you're just misreading it, here is the secondary statement of that same principle. It says, but concerning the city now, where there's no temple, where the Lamb is the light, this is the final harvest from among mankind, humankind, who have ever lived, the final harvest following the millennium and when God is, the, is, is Himself, both the temple and the light. Here is who will be with him at that time. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. And here is how that is further defined. But only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, if everybody's going to be saved, why is this exclusivity? Only those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we know from the previous reading in chapter 20 that the unrighteous dead, those who died outside of Christ, brought back are brought back for judgment. And they, being those not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, are cast alongside Satan and alongside uh, the beast, the false prophet, the spirits of death and hell, cast into the lake of fire. Now, I suppose that somewhere the proponents of universal salvation will figure out a way to retrieve them out of the lake of fire and might even suggest 
that the lake of fire is for refinement. Well, that runs into the fact that their names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life at the time they were cast into the lake of fire. And this picks up on that very principle and says they will not be part of that which is in the presence of God because they are part of that which defiles. One of the fellows I personally knew years ago who believed in this doctrine of universal salvation was a fellow who was, he was fatherless and he went around and I'm not saying this is the condition of everybody who believes in the doctrine of universal salvation because theirs is a theory based upon a scripture that says God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and their argument then is all will because God is not willing. No, not willing there means it is not the choice of God that any should perish. Who then perishes? Well, they're described as the abominable, fornicators, adulterers, murderers, thieves, liars, they all have their part in the lake of fire. So, universal salvation is a doctrine of demons and if you hope to get a pass on the basis of that notion, you're risking everything for a principle, for a thing, it's not a principle, that appears nowhere in Scripture and the weight of everything else that appears makes it uncontrovertible that some will be raised to life and some will be raised for destruction, raised back from the dead for final judgment and destruction. Either way, when Jesus hands up the kingdom to the Father, they're not included because A, they've already been destroyed but B, the main reason they were destroyed is that their names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life in the first place. This fellow I knew was fatherless and he wore a chip on his shoulder. He'd go around testing everybody, he was an intelligent fellow, but he was going around testing everybody to see if they would reject him. And needless to say, unskilled church leaders did, did, because he was an unsavory character to begin with, but they didn't see what he was doing, that he was trying to verify that his behaviors and his beliefs 
should be accepted as part of the notion that if you, if you truly say you love God, then you'll love everybody. And his ver version of love was, you'll accept everybody in the condition that they're in and you won't require them to change. And that's just the attitude of a child, quite frankly, and a petulant child at that. I have no sympathy for those who would deceive the unsuspecting because they truly become agents of Satan whether they realize it or not. You don't have to know that you're an agent of Satan. You don't have to agree necessarily to be an agent of Satan. You, should just, you just have to oppose the truth. And whatever you say then, opposing the truth is what aids the cause of your enemy. I was reminded of the story uh, of when Jesus was approached by a certain lawyer who asked him what was written in the law, how did he read the law? And Jesus' reply was, you're the lawyer, you tell me. Of course, he was willing to oblige. He tells him, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly, but you're not doing it. And, and uh, here's the, the language. And he, being willing to justify himself, asked, and who is my neighbor? People begin not with an honest search for what is true, but quite often they begin with the conclusion that is in the nature of being willing to justify themselves. An argument doesn't change the truth. An argument that persuades you has no impact on God. An argument that persuades others, even if a majority of people are persuaded by such an argument, doesn't alter the truth even slightly. There's nothing worse than being self-deceived because you don't know the quantum of darkness that you're in. I use this occasion where the final word is spoken on who, who is included when God becomes, when God enters into that which has been fully prepared, selected, chosen, disciplined, matured, and presented to God for His dwelling place by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a highly selective and intentional process. It is simple to engage but very difficult to maintain.
simple to engage in this way. Salvation, the death of Jesus on the cross to reconcile us to God is a free gift to whoever wills. So you may come into Christ by accepting such a great salvation, but you do not get to behave in any way you want to after that because in Christ the standard of behavior, conduct, character and performance, the standard is Christ. When you're in Christ, you're in a way of life over which He asserts dominance and hegemony that is akin to the rule of a rod of iron. Yes, He will have mercy, yes, He will be patient, yes, He will be long-suffering and kind, but those are not any kind of suggestion. What is contained in those words is not any kind of suggestion that He will compromise. When He is done, when His processes are done, you will be transformed. And if you're not transformed in this life because of free will, you will be transformed in the millennial period. And when the millennial period is finished, all that remains, all that remains, because final judgment comes at the end of the millennial period. That's when the unrighteous dead are raised, that's when when the great white throne judgment takes place, and those who were received as sons in this life will be subject to the rule that they resisted while they were in this life. Everyone is now subject to the rule of the rod of iron and those who submit to that rule will be judged at the end of the millennium, I'm sorry, will be judged at the return of the Lord to be worthy of occupying and carrying, occupying a place with Him and carrying out His rule on the earth because they will have already been uh, conformed to the divine standard which is unbendable. One of the reasons why we suffer in this life in walking with God is that we are made to be like Him, which is to give up our independence, give up our ideas, give up our notions of how things ought to be and submit to the rule of Christ as administrated by the Holy Spirit in the forms of divine discipline that it takes. That's why we have to be subject to our rulers, not the not the rulers of this world, but to those who watch over our souls as those who will give an account. That's why God assembles us in families under the rule of fathers, 
because they can correct us. God means to use fathers as disciplining instruments for our correction. Even earthly fathers, scriptures say, were assigned that role. Yes, earthly fathers have been abusive and not very helpful, but the alternative is to be orphans where you are vulnerable to every trafficking and abuse that's possible. And even at that, when they are decent fathers, they are factors in our world that still abuse children. Sometimes churches abuse children. Sometimes Boy Scouts abuse children. Sometimes day camps abuse children or daycare, on and on and on. So in the best of circumstances, abuse is still possible. With no fathers, abuse is a way of life. Spiritually, the same is true. There are certain so-called spiritual fathers They're not actually fathers because the model of a father is one who knows God the Father. model of a spiritual father is one who knows God the Father. They may may indeed be unspiritual fathers like wolves in sheep's clothing and they'll abuse children. But the bottom line is that God disciplines everyone He receives as a son because The point of view is you must be choreographed to, you must be aligned to an exact standard and that's what determines whether or not your administration, your life comes to be an exact representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something you can do yourself and it's something that requires discipline and training. Now, to suggest that someone who's lived without the benefit of any of this, who lived in the way he lived, he or she, absolutely disregarding the standard of Christ, what fruit is born in them? What are they good for? nothing. They have no eternal purpose and they have no eternal value. Listen, humans are not intrinsically valuable. I understand that there are laws that reflect a societal view that we are intrinsically valuable, but those are not That's not the same as saying God thinks we are intrinsically valuable. He says it this way, the ungodly are not so, they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, they shall not stand in the congregation of the righteous. That was said in the second psalm. Well, I'm sorry, in the first psalm. So no, universal salvation is silly nonsense. 
except it's dangerous for those people who believe it. You don't have the right to skip over the requirements of divine righteousness and end up with the same place as if you had because, because, it's not that God is angry or uh, loves some and doesn't love others. No, that's not it at all. It is that the training that is required to be a mature representation of Christ in this life and through the millennium to learn to rule righteously, carrying out the dictates and commands of Christ in the same and exact manner as He would have. That's what's required to be the housing, the dwelling place of God at the end of the millennium when Jesus hands up the kingdom to the Father. And that's what's being spoken of in the definitive language that says, but there shall by no means enter anything, enter it, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. That's very exclusive. In fact, more exclusively stated is this language, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It does say that kings will walk in the light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. Uh, the gates will not be shut day or night and so on and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. I'll comment on those when we come back. I'm Sam Solon. We'll, we're coming to the close of our teachings on the, 20, on the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter, and we'll go into the 22nd chapter subsequently. But there are a few odds and ends that I want to focus on. They're not odds and ends in the sense of being insignificant, by no means, but they're parts of things that are still outstanding. We'll continue to study and uh, unpack those things as well. So, until then, I will I'll plan to see you as we continue our studies together. I'll see you then. Bye now.